0: When referring to a manipulation campaign using fear as the motivator, Bernays uses words like appeal to waken an instinct. Appeal to waken an instinct. So listen to the choice of words this person Bernays uses. Domination today is not a product of armies or navies or wealth or policies. It's a domination based on accomplished unity and the fact that opposition is generally characterized by a high degree of disunity. Divide and conquer. So domination, right? Domination. So according to Bernays assertion, domination is unity and the opposition to his domination has no unity. <laughs> Clearly a baseless affirmation and counters his own claim earlier that dominant groups are not his team. Otherwise, he wouldn't discuss the inertia, uh, which must be overcome to displace these groups. Also, Bernays' choice of the word opposition is interesting. It's not this island of people and, and other people on another island coexisting you know respecting each other's rights you know to their own values and beliefs it's domination domination and they are the opposition to his domination they must think and believe what he the pr agent tells them this is the mindset of pr as demonstrated by the godfather of pr himself edward bernays keep this in context, right? So in the context of this this book uh, on manipulation, despite Bernays talking about displacing dominant groups instead of their opinions, his words could be interpreted to mean a goal from the perspective of the uh, manipulator. That is portray your client's propaganda as if it is the dominant group's opinion so we see where all these things are starting to align now and he's referring to dominant groups and domination right is 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 that the the defensive goal or would this be an offensive goal of public relations it doesn't sound too defensive to me so like a lot of manipulation it is both offense and defense you know for the manipulator it's it's offensive as it is uh, attacking the target's minds And it's defensive, as anyone who challenges them may be seen as the lunatic fringe who is attacking the dominant position. So they can easily pivot from one position to another. Whether it's actually the dominant position or not is irrelevant if the targets think everyone else believes the Emperor is wearing nice new shiny clothes. So, cunning, if this is exactly what he means. It might be, it might not be. I think it probably is, though. I suppose it's just a, a variant of the uh, a fallacious appeal to the masses. These are, it's, it feels like it, right? So it, instead of just everyone else believes X, you know, everyone believes X. And if you question or challenge X, you are a lunatic fringe conspiracy theorist. Now this is stuff we see all the time. And uh, it's a fallacious appeal to the, to the mass with an ad hominem of any opposition, more of a, a complete attack, right, offense with built-in defense. These people obviously are getting paid a lot of money. And they sit around boardrooms, so they're not going to just use one, you know, logical fallacy. Obviously, they're going to have a structured attack, which is, you know, I don't know, would you call it cunning? Or is that just business? <laughs> it's just business. So regardless This apparent hostility to dominant groups is a common trait in uh, losers, you know, uh, or people with low self-esteem, individuals who view themselves as the out group. I see this appeal to uh, to losers in agitprop, in the movies, in the arts, in songs, in writing. You know, you think of uh, Beck... Uh, his song, So I Unpair adore, Door, like, I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill him, right? So, you know, yes, we all lose at times. That's life, and that's learning. We all have antagonists. There may even be many, but that does not make us losers. It's a common uh, trope that the, you know, the weak shall inherit the earth. I know it's the, the meek shall inherit the earth, but there is no difference really, you know, between meek and weak, Right. Meek easily is, you know, imposed on, submissive, and weak just means lacking strength. So there really isn't much difference between the words meek and weak, even though there, there is, you know, recognize there is a difference. It's more refined. So meek is more a, uh, a mental weakness, whereas weak can be both physical and mental. You might be physically weak just due to lack of muscle or you know, illness. Uh, sickness who knows but uh, meek is a something you can change or maybe some people can't (laughs) so people uh, can argue or have argued perhaps that the uh, the meek choose to be docile and that's because they are you know mental weaklings if they weren't they wouldn't be meek that is easily imposed upon or submissive as per the definition of meek So there are tropes about the the weak fighting back. You know, it goes back centuries. You know, the comeback kid, the underdog... Revenge of the Nerds, you know, Hulk Hogan shaking his fists and standing up after he took a wicked beating, you know, uh, it's such a, a common, every fight, right? Especially the big ones, you know, or, or, or any other fight movie like Rocky or, or any fight movie, right? Or any battle, right? They get, they have to get, they can't just fight and win. They have to get defeated and, and they have to come back, right? They have to, and, well, the nerds, I guess were meek to begin with, so I, I might be conflating, Uh, getting beaten up and being meek, but um, there are, uh, you know, these movies are and and, and books and whatever songs, even Rush has stuff about that. So they are inspirational and and fun, you know, to see the, the outmatched win, right? The, uh, the, what do you call it? The, uh, what's that guy, Uh, David and Goliath, right? So the uh, it's unexpected and it makes for uh, a more interesting entertainment. Like karate, you know, it's boring to fight someone who doesn't fight back. It's, and it's boring to watch someone who's clearly superior fighter. Just, you know, there's no challenge. what's there's, there's no, it's like two horses racing. Who cares if one horse is way back and the other horse is way in the lead? It's boring. It's the neck and neck, literally horse races that are more interesting. But I'm conflating again the, the loser part with the hero part. Losers uh, stay losers if they don't get back up to fight. Heroes are also not losers if they uh, didn't face, you know, uh, superior forces or at least have a low probability of winning or succeeding in their challenge, quest or goal. So Bernays simultaneously attacks the dominant group while arguing there is no dominant group while fighting to be, you know, the dominant group. (laughs) I, Bernays, I'm the dominant group. So it could just be, you know, situational activation, situational activation of antithetical values and reasoning to evoke negative emotions. <laughs> what a mouthful of bullshit, right? So his fallacious logic, that was my, my expression. So That was my bullshit. I don't want him to take credit for my bullshit. So his, his fallacious logic of stereotype uh, projects traits onto whomever he claims is dominant. While his fantasy is to argue that they do not exist, so am I qualified to psychoanalyze Bernays? Well, I don't think anyone is qualified to psychoanalyze anyone else. It's it's a it's a it's a faux pseudoscience. So, but we can use our powers of observation and make best guesses, understanding that that's all they are. So, my uh, my post-secondary education is, is mostly hard sciences and, and math and electronics. So that doesn't really make me qualified right in the, in the soft sciences. <clears throat> but again, I don't think anybody's qualified in the soft sciences. So is, is, Berna, is, is, Bernays perhaps more qualified than I am, if you think, right? Cause we're talking about him and he's talking about the soft sciences. So Is he more qualified to discuss public relations? He went to school for agriculture. <laughs> so so to all those uh, arrogant sitiates who pray to the dark tower of PR and who call, you know, Aggies, Rubes, you know, their evil Messiah in that dark tower is an Aggie. <laughs> the irony is thick. So Bernays conflates dominant groups with institutions. You know, I went over institutions in quite detail in, uh... In the Gustav Le bon podcast, which was nine hours. <laughs> but his example of a dominant group is the institution of electing representatives to Congress. So that is a mode, a methodology. It is not a dominant group. But it's crying about, uh, you know, elections is a red flag. And he might be... Uh, a closet or perhaps not even a closet Marxist with all that, uh, you know, disgusting dictatorship garbage that goes with centralized control that this guy uh, Bernays is is awfully, apparently fond of. So he slips to uh, partisan groups and how Teddy Roosevelt seemed to uh, supersede them. So similar to Donald Trump and his supporters, are uh, you know his supporters not partisan supporters of the GOP, right? They're they're not his. They're uh, let me see if I could explain that. I think you understand, right? Donald Trump supporters are Donald Trump supporters. They're not typically or not totally within the class. They're not defined as uh, Republicans, although technically they are. But I think there's a lot of people who are fans of Donald Trump who are not partisan Republicans. I think everybody recognizes that, right? There's a difference. There's an overlap, but there's a difference. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, so Bernays, he, he whines about the, the, the farm labor party and this, the socialist party. Despite years of campaigning, they have failed to become even strongly recognizable opponents to the established groups. As if campaigning alone is sufficient to gain support. It's odd how Marxists don't see how irrational they are but how everyone else does, right? The icing is that Marxists often think that they are somehow smarter than everyone else, which is a very common flaw in the uncritical mind. Now, I don't think I'm smarter than everyone else. I know I'm not. Like when I listen to people like Matt Taibbi talk, I'm like, wow, that guy just really seems to be smart, (laughs) smarter than me. And, uh, I don't know, that's not a very high bar perhaps, but, um, According to Bernays' logic, the simple solution for the socialist or in any other fringe group is to simply become unified. <laughs> so in reality, you know, uh, they, like all other cults, are most likely unified. But uh, being unified is, you know, in, in delusion and in, in stupidity is not sufficient to uh, force or coerce, uh, you know, others to join the ranks so it is uh it's not a coincidence that these fringe cults advertise to the meek the mentally weak you know layers or losers of society you know this is a safe place for all the misfits right everyone can feel like a misfit at times right and everyone is a misfit at times because we are not all part of some collective monolith Right. Of course, we're not going to fit in. Of course, we're going to have differences because we are not all the same thing. Right. We're all unique. You know, what makes one misfit, uh, what makes one a misfit is not having the courage to embrace the uniqueness. So, if you want to use the word misfit as a derogatory, right. Bernays claims there are forces uh, suffering from disunity which seek to overthrow dominant groups every day and in every phase of our lives political moral and economic but he does not cite any evidence but i'll agree that there are non-unified forces seeking to change political moral and economic groups of course but i thought the point of pr was to change the opinion of target groups not replace the group (laughs) It may seem like a, uh, a natural interpretation type event, but group in no way is an interpretation of opinion. So a group may share an opinion, but again, a group does not equal opinion. They are separate context, context, concepts. Perhaps Bernays views opinions as being locked to people and, and those people need to be removed of power and influence. Perhaps his politics is slipping out through the cracks of his writing. I assume Bernays is trying to say a group who has an opinion, and that's the group who he's attacking. But he wrote, replace the group, not convince them. For a grand master of rhetoric and manipulation, this dude is apparently scatterbrained. I could be missing something. It wouldn't be the first time. Bernays claims a point of view can seldom establish new mediums by which to approach those people to whom it wishes to appeal. As if a new point of view is a living thing. Meme theory. Meme consciousness. It wishes to appeal. The point of view. It. A thing. Very (laughs) meme-like. Meme theory-like. So can a point of view wish anything, right? Wishing definitely implies consciousness. (laughs) Personification is a tool of rhetoric. Maybe Bernays is just trying to be flowery with his writing. The goal of this entity, this new point of view, as determined by some anonymous third party, you know, the client of PR is to unify a group to concerted will or action unify a group to a concerted will or action as the will of a new point of view. <laughs> Obviously, not all points of view want anything because they are not sentient, but PR's clients' points of view apparently are. Bernays is, uh, <clears throat> is uh, clearly skating around reality. <laughs> he's, he's intentionally being misleading. I think, you know, we all know the will is that of the PR's client, the big money, the anonymous third party in the fo- in the uh, in the shadows funding the attack, not the will of some specific point of view. So this is a very deceptive euphemism that Bernays is using. So this is how Edward Bernays communicates. He's a, you know, POS shyster. Again, I will try to cut down on my swearing so an interesting etymology on the word uh, Scheister it's uh, the word comes from German Scheiser which is a vulgar term for a shitty person (laughs) so I'm trying to get away from swearing but here I am talking about Scheiser right so it was coined by a Manhattan newspaper editor around 1844 and he was using it against the legal and political corruption that was happening at the times so it's funny how some things never change. Shyster is a is a great word. So Brene's point: a new point of view can seldom establish new mediums by which to approach those people to whom it wishes to appeal. It's just a rehashing of how manipulators should use established media to, you know, as establishing instead of you know establishing new radio stations, movies, or distribution, etc., as that would be too costly. Or too much, too big of an overtaking. But again, I don't know if it would be. If PR is truly this important, wouldn't some major corporation prefer to own a radio station? Which I think might be happening today, right? So he explains the work of PR as directing public thought to the problems of his clients. So the work of PR is to direct public thought to the problems of his clients. It's not to educate people. It's not to help them. It's to educate them or direct, it's not to educate them. It's to direct them to uh, their thought, to the problems of his clients. Not their clients, PR's clients. So clearly from what he wrote earlier, it's not a, as, you know, as innocuous as just directing thought or perhaps, you know, I'm interpreting directing thought uh, as an aiming But uh, let me direct your attention to the drapes, right? Uh, Direct as in point, you know, there's the drapes. Look over there. Let me direct your attention. But Bernays may mean direct as in control, as in a film director controls the movie set or a director of operations controls the ops. This is more likely what he's talking about when he says direct, right? That kind of direction. Let me direct your attention. Not so much. I am directing this operation. That's more what he's thinking. I am directing your opinions. I'm not pointing them out. I am controlling them. So uh, to direct the target's thought, you know, to govern the operations, to, to manage. That meaning would seem, you know, more plausible in a book about manipulation. Manage the target's thought to that of his client's problems. Bernays is using the cognitive distortion uh, or cognitive error of minimalization or minimization. Is there an L? I think it's just minimization, right? It's not minimalization. It's minimization of his uh, nefarious deeds. Uh, an interesting observation is Bernays mentioning a hundred years ago now the uh, the narrowing down of the numbers of newspapers and he was complaining that it points to the imminent danger of a news monopoly in the United States. Wow. For a creature like Bernays to be worried about news monopolies, it must be a really bad thing. <laughs> or is this crocodile not worried about it, but secretly rubbing his hands together in anticipation and sort of, you know, um, signaling to his his audience of so-called elites, look what's happening. If you guys work together and we get a monopoly going, we can totally control the idiot public. right? Or is he lamenting perhaps that it might be harder for a PR huckster to gain access to the news if the owners don't want PR's client narrative to be broadcast. Like today with Twitter, with Elon Musk, all the the PR monsters are writhing in agony and in the sunlight as, as he's making it difficult for manipulation and disinformation and, and mis- honest misinformation, but it's mostly disinformation that the PR people are working on. So this could be a lament, right? He's, he's lamenting, Bernays is lamenting the, the potential future uh, Elon Musk's of uh, Twitter. So it could be all, or all the above, right? So he writes, the PR council must subdivide the appeal of his subject and present it through the widest variety of avenues to the public. Why he writes subdivide the appeal as opposed to just divide is unknown, as subdivide means to divide something that has already been divided. So he's subdividing something that's been divided. So how should we interpret a divided appeal? Not broad strokes, but targeted messaging to as many different targets as feasible. Bernays classifies those divisions he doesn't say but we can assume they are stereotypes of groups as he did explicitly say use stereotypes so who uh we're also to guess that he means framing the narrative conducive to a nature lover for nature magazines family oriented to a woman's magazine object oriented in a man's magazine you know, competition-oriented in a sports mag, etc. So he writes that targets accept facts which come through existing channels, new things in accustomed ways. So there's a secret right there. So the new information has to come through an established channel. So they have they have to use medical journals to give out new bogus medical information. So that would mean that the medical journals would have to be compromised to public relations in order for this system to work. Regulatory capture, right? Um, and the whole it's it's amazing. It's hard to believe, but anyways. More importantly, Bernays writes the. Uh, they have neither the time nor inclination to search for facts, for uh, that are not readily available to them. Let me read that a little smoother. They have neither the time nor inclination to search for facts that are not readily available to them. That's what Edward Bernays wrote. Why would he write that? They have neither the time nor inclination to search for facts that are not readily available. The implication is that he would be, uh, concerned if the targets bothered checking the facts, right? Why would he even mention that right today? Fact checkers is just another euphemism, uh, for the manipulator. It's just an ever, another avenue, another vector of attack for the manipulator. Who's checking the fact checker checkers, right? Quis custodiat ipsos custodius right? Bernays uses the, uh a fallacious appeal to the expert citing himself as that expert tries to sell the reader on the need for his so-called profession. The fact he is trying so hard to sell PR so hard, (laughs) he may not, you know, believe in the need for it, right? Otherwise he wouldn't really need to be pushing it, right? He would just be demonstrating the self-evidence, the self, how self-evident it is, you know, um, needed (laughs) regardless it's off-putting to be sold something one word that Bernays introduced me to was interlap which is a more accurate meaning than overlap as overlap means to cover whereas you know when we think of a Venn diagram interlap is more precise it's not covering it it's just interlapping And it's it's transparent, like two lenses over top of each other interlap. They don't overlap. One doesn't block or obscure the other one. You could still see through it. So it's an interlap. So Bernays mentions the flexibility of human nature as an aid to PR necromancia. The flexibility of human nature as a vector of attack. So the PR scumbags target the open-minded. They target the close-minded too, but to use an open-mindedness as as a vector of attack is so loathsome. Targeting that mechanism which natural selection has given to us for growth, development, and learning is more evidence of the boundless amorality of the manipulator class. To be open-minded while not being critical of data makes us naive and gullible and obviously vulnerable to attacks. But being closed-minded also is an aid to the manipulator, as once they cook you, you are more resilient to the truth, destroying their enchantment. The only viable path is to be open-minded and be very critical, especially of the regular channels of manipulation. The news, the experts, the movies, the theater, radio, politicians... Ads, religious leaders, schools, and even museums, according to Bernays and today in ottawa the there's a the museum that's there has been compromised extremely. They are so racist and bigoted now that they are banning people based on skin color, and I believe they fired people based on skin color. This is how overtly racist <laughs> the system has become today. So Bernays gives us another of his definitions of public opinion as the product of individual minds. I'm glad to see his recognizing uh, of the individual, though he still is asserting a public opinion, which is the same old shtick. The product of individual minds implies the result of a process. If he was meaning the sum of individual minds, he should have said sum as sum and product are two different concepts. How would you multiply minds, <laughs> To right? think of it, right? The product, how would you multiply minds? You could add, I could say how you add multiple people together. How do you multiply? So perhaps he's, he's implying the power of his fantasy public opinion is more powerful than simply the sum of individual minds. This could be. Most likely, he just means public opinion is manifested from the collection of individual minds. But as we know, everyone has a unique mind unless they've been conditioned by some external force and are now a collective of like-minded zombies. Hmm, maybe. So even then, as we've all been through school and know the conditioning doesn't stick to everyone evenly, I was a trap recruit, as I said, in basic training. Was I the most conditioned? I would say not. Just, I knew, uh, <laughs> you know, I was there for them to teach me some crap and for me to do what they said. I knew this wasn't a permanent state, so I did what they said, right? It was, it was more theater than conditioning, right? It was the opposite of, of rocket science. They said, sleep, you sleep. They said, run, you ran. You know, they said, salute this guy, you salute that guy. It's not rocket science, right? Not too hard, right? I remember uh, What's-His-Face, uh, the actor who played uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, Alec uh, Guinness, talking about his time in the military and how it was theater, for he used uh, he used that for uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Could Bernays mean public opinion as just the collection of a vast and diverse set of opinions? That would make the most sense, but that would make the concept of public opinion meaningless as a collection of infinite variety is infinitely varied and not a single opinion, despite framing it and naming it as such. It should never be uh, singular. It should always be plural. The opinions of the public, public's opinions on the matter. Right. I don't know if you pluralize the publics. I guess you could do right, but definitely the opinions should be plural. So the singular fantasy garbage has to go. It's distorted, but Bernays is voluntarily handicapping himself, it's self-inflicted with the the error of stereotype. So it makes sense from the outside; they would be blind to all the uh, fallacious to that fallacious heap, right. simply creating a class. Does not in any way make all those we assign to that class clones. Or, you know, you get the idea. Just because I put you in a certain class doesn't mean you even belong in that class. So the class of, you know, red haired people, you know, share nothing other than having red hair. If they even, they may not even be natural redheads. Who knows? I don't know. There may be, uh, you know, stereotypes of gingers, you know, like short tempers or or whatever, but that is not proven, and simply assigning it is stereotype. The class of public opinion is even a greater fallacious leap. There is no one public opinion, and even Gust- Gustav Le Bon uh, would agree to that. Just because we may think a stereotype could fit does it mean that it's the truth. Just like the the Kuleshov uh, effect in in film editing, what we project onto others may not be objectively true. Just because you it looks like that person is thinking that or feeling that doesn't mean they actually are. <laughs> when you watch a movie, you know, do you see the actors acting and notice the cuts, or do you fill in the gaps and create the illusion of a uh, continuous story in your mind? It's actually quite funny to realize the actors are acting on a set, you know. In, in better movies, it's it's almost impossible to, to miss in crap, you know, low budget films, which makes it hard for us to melt into the illusion of the story. That's the the movie magic, the you know the illusion, right? The magic of the movies, is being taken away, transported away, right? But when you <laughs> if you consciously look at the actors and think they're acting and and, and it, it's actually quite humorous. So, anyways, it's sad that the uh, the field of crowd psychology started with the the garbage from Gustav Le Bon and PR uh, with Bernays. Uh, Bernays claims individual minds make up the group mind. Prove to me the existence of this group mind, Edward. Also, define it. Like it's a Carl Jung. Uh, his uh, collective mind uh, lebon's crowd or just some other sample of people who happen to all agree on something right it's what is it right bernays doesn't try to prove it because it doesn't exist there is mimicry and other behaviors exhibited by some but a crowd mind is only asserted i could see there being a critical mass of people with you know shared opinions or values as a group but why not just define them as a class that share that specific value right if we look closer we we would see a group in that class that has this value and believe x the more we try to precisely define a class define a class the fewer and fewer people are in it eventually ending with the individual again we can do the widespread accurate broad strokes of people with two eyes and, uh, you know, we all have many hits, but the higher the precision of, of describing any one person in that class, the lower the accuracy of describing the entire class. We may be tempted to make Bernays, you know, his definitions more precise, but then we will be falling uh, into the the dangerous thinking of assumptions and, and and filling the gaps. There's too much of that already. And vague writing forces the targets us to adopt that mode of connecting the dots for the manipulator. Those connections most likely being phantom connections and the whole chain of thought being a false premise that feels true because we reasoned it out ourselves by making those phantom connections. So we have to err on the side of literal meanings and hold things as undefined That are not defined. For example, Bernays writes, the established order of things is maintained by the inertia of the group. The established order of things is maintained by the inertia of the group. What order? What things? Which group? (laughs) A ghost! I can connect the dots for Bernays in my imagination for example i could think of people farming or how our culture you know line up for things that and think that it is maintained by all who comply with the concept but that group is only homogeneous in terms of their compliance with those lines but the established order of things implies a much grander scope of things in some great order and this overreach of concept is maintained by the group which also implies a vast group if it's maintaining the order of things, right? All things. If one quickly skims and, and allows their minds to connect the dots, it seems reasonable, uh, prima facie. But it's a sleight of uh, hand trick, right? A sleight of hand that uh, with words, a sleight of hand with words, rhetoric, right? Deceptive language. A sleight of hand with cognition, an illusion, an intentionally deceptive cognitive illusion. It is possible that manipulators can do this by gut feel and are not cognizant of the specific techniques or, you know, are they consciously doing it, Do they have a recipe book, right? You know, yes. In fact, it would seem likely that they, you know, use fallacious thinking. Otherwise, this would require them to know how to do it and how to still be irrational, so it seems to be like their their you know gut right, which is pure you know if if they did right either way, it's still pure evil, so you know I would err on the side of them doing you know but perhaps not being able to articulate precisely how they are doing it. they are instinctive manipulators so and again, not all manipulators are the same. I don't want to stereotype too many people, even in the context of Bernays writing a book uh, selling manipulation and evil to the greater evil. I would still lean towards you know him being a deceptive pos, but not totally cognizant of the specific fallacies and cognitive illusions he's pulling on the reader. Probably because he's faulty, uh, his, his faulty reasoning allows him to unwittingly pull those fallacies on himself. So to Bernays, it's just good thinking. makes me wonder what, you know, cognitive fallacies we are all pulling on ourselves. Which we think is good thinking, or too lazy to look at critically. Bernays claims there are three factors PR can use to change the order of things. So he wants to change the order of things. Not just change people's opinions, but now he wants to change the order of things. So these are these three. Number one, interlapping groups. Number two, continuous shifting of groups. Number three, changed physical conditions to which groups respond. Physical conditions, not mental. Physical conditions. So he claims these vulnerabilities are brought about by the inherent flexibility of human nature. Accuracy versus precision is more complex than just shotgun versus rifle. That is only the one-way projection. There is also another side of it, the perspective of the receiving end, and yet another perspective of the impartial third party observing the whole interaction. So if we think of like a floodlight on a shining into the forest in our backyard you know it might hit an owl in a tree and if we're trying to describe an owl to a young child we might broadly say the owl is in the light which is 100 percent accurate but not very precise because there are many other things also in the light the lawnmower that ran out of gas, the old pickup truck that was parked there 10 years ago, the pool, the barbecue, the parked helicopter. You know, you get the point, right? The kid may not know what you mean by owl. So we might pull out a laser pointer, you know, from our keychain or whatever and point to the owl's beak and say, see that, that's the owl. The kid may now uh, realize all the, uh, the superfluous crap is not the owl, but if they, you know, <laughs> if they're an idiot, they may think the, uh, The owl is only the beak the laser is pointing to. So one can be uh, very precise and accurate and still be wrong. We might be overly precise, right? It's scope. It's It's a scale issue. It's a framing and naming, you know, too high of precision. And we're no longer talking about the concept of owl. We're talking about the concept of a beak or proteins or molecules or atoms or quarks or whatever voodoo universe is down there at the Planck length, right? So. You know, I may be conflating precision with scale, but uh, you get the point. Uh, Overly precise, maybe it's just a, a scaling issue, right? So we need to back out a bit and see the entire owl and define what the limits of what an owl is. So the outer edge of the feathers, perhaps, but even then we need to back out to its habitat, right? The scale and scope, things are not in isolation, Right? It, it can't exist without the air and the environment, the food, where it's living, right? So it's critical that we use the, those definitions and scales in consistent context. Otherwise, we're overreaching our definitions of models or whatever the case may be. In this case, owl, right? It's not an isolation. The uh, that The owl may be necessary, perhaps, for the survival of the tree that it lives in, right? The owl may need to... Eat some seed, particularly, uh, you know, uh, and, and digest it partially and drop the seed with some, you know, uh, partially digested mouse bits, which would make the owl and the tree some form of co-species, like how humans are with the microbes that live in our gut. So my point is that not being aware of the concepts of scope and scale in terms of definitions and archetypes and models or analogies can lead to error. The etymology of the word sin comes from missing the target. Probably from hunting, you know, when you miss, you go hungry. So the missing was a sin, right? Now imagine being at the receiving end. From the perspective of the target, we need to think of accuracy and precision every now and then when we're being fed information. Which can get more difficult with more abstract ideas. Take the claim, the alien system of domination over human minds is maintained by the activation of cognitive blindness to fallacies and other concepts. This is all unfounded assertions, right? But if one's belief limiter allowed the concept of aliens as potentially real, and if they are, you know, not critical thinkers, they might take affirmations as given truth. So one, we don't know alien intelligence are real or if they interact with humans. Two, since we don't know if they're real, how can we think they have a system of domination over our minds? Three, there's no proven mechanism of ESP or telekinesis that I'm aware of. So even if one and two are true, there's no proof of the mechanism. Four, while humans demonstrably do fall for for for. Fall for fallacious logic. That's hard to say. Fall for fallacious logic. (laughs) There's no proof that it's activated by a foreign sentience. All those assertions are baseless without evidence and not very believable because I have placed them outside uh, most people's belief limits. So the faulty logic is evident. But... If I gave the same example with more believable factors, using the same false logic, a lot of people would make false connections via their personal anecdotes or imagination and believe it. So I'm not a skilled manipulator. So it's difficult for me to come up with an example of all the uh, complexity and nuance of form that a master manipulator would. It's like describing the Mona Lisa to someone. I could draw a crude representation of it. I could see the complex and nuance, but I need to develop a more sophisticated vocabulary and expand my schemata, my my mental library of concepts to articulate it more precisely and within the proper scope. We hear people say, I can't describe it, but you'll know it when you see it. (laughs) It's part of the human condition to notice phenomena before we have a definition of it. And it's a challenge to share a concept we don't have a precise definition of. Like the concept of a new monster. We may catch a glimpse of its beak. We might see its droppings and only hear it in the darkness. We need to catch it and study it to get a better uh, concept to grasp what this thing is. And even then, we may not be able to convey the concept to someone from the city who has never experienced the dark night add to that the different disinformation crowd that may try to tell the uh, the the other fellow citizens that they uh, there's not a new monster it's just a duck the creature that we've all seen right so you you you're actually facing this kind of stuff as well when you're trying to give new uh, new information so the first attempts are often crude And approximate and full of errors, but that shotgun technique can be refined with reasoning to a highly precise point. Hubris and arrogance prevents us from thinking our crude first attempts, you know, can be wrong. More so if we happen to hit a bird with our, you know, wide net shotgun approach. This is most likely what's happening with Bernays though the deceptive, fallacious mode of thinking is complex and it's hard to believe occurs without an intentional effort. Though this could be uh, just a natural selection of memes or modes of manipulation, right? The patently false concepts, you know, the obviously false concepts and, and arguments fall away and die and wither and, you know, Only the crafty, effective ones remain because those are the ones that are effective. It's like an infinite number of monkeys writing. One will eventually write Hamlet. Or I guess if there's an infinite number of them, an infinite number of them would eventually write Hamlet. Infinity is bizarre. (laughs) There have been a ton of critical thinkers before me who were orders of magnitude more intelligent. How come their observations... You know, we're not sufficient to destroy the persistence of bogus reasoning from the likes of Bernays. The fact we all know people who clearly made it through adulthood with decent careers and normal lives, yet are clearly not critical thinkers indicate there is no powerful force to get us to think critically. Just just enough to survive is all you need, and you will survive, right? Which is bizarre. We learn the minimum necessary to get us through the life of this epoch and don't bother wasting energy trying to find out what is true. Conditioned monkeys by malevolent forces are just efficient thinkers who only attain the minimum cognitive powers necessary to achieve the goals of social norms. Vast errors can be accepted if they have no noticeable impact on survival. Apparently, there's a proven conditioning and manipulation admitted by people like Bernays and the authors of PSYOP's manuals that exist. (laughs) So we don't want to admit that we are capable of being manipulated. I understand that. But the evidence is overwhelming, and we would be delusional to ignore it. Things that are obvious to some are invisible to others. Do we see things that are not there, or are they blind? When we have cooperation by perpetrators, we have our proof. (laughs) The difficulty is in getting those blind people to see. Is this a uh, a futile venture? It might seem so. Also, just because we're self-critical, that does not prove that we are correct about anything. I could be wrong about absolutely everything. Just because I'm being self-critical. We use abductive reasoning the majority of the time, so there's a high probability we can be as wrong as the idiots I am critiquing. I feel my mind circling back to the same concepts. Could this circling back or repetition be some form of self-deception? Some affirmations of a random or worse, false concept? Like I witnessed with my buddy with p t s d who claimed Jesus was going to return and kill two thirds of the Jews he repeated the 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 like a mantra they're gonna come back he's gonna come he's It was weird it was like spooky anyways but perhaps best effort is all we can do do what you can right try right but uh back to Bernays his, uh, his three factors to manipulate the target are interlapping groups, continuous shifting of targets, changing physical conditions to which the group respond. So Carl Jung is is a laugh to read, but I get disappointed with his baseless assertions. He sees phantom connections and repeats it like gospel. It's very disappointing. Hypothesis is not proven fact, which one would think is obvious, especially to the likes of Carl Jung. But sadly, even the revered minds in our species, or subspecies depending on how you roll, are infested with garbage logic. Bernays argues against the claim no one has made. He argues society is not divided into two groups, and then cites not capital and labor, men and women, rich and poor, heathen and faithful. Well, one can put people into classes and divide society into those classes, men, women, rich, poor, heathen, faithful, Well, of course. And there are others who may not fit into our fabricated class or arbitrary group, such as children in the class of men and women, middle class in the uh, rich-poor category, though heathen and faithful may cover everyone because from the perspective of the faithful, any anyone who is not faithful is defined as a heathen. <laughs> Right. It is black and white for some. Bernays then argues that a class is not a homogeneous group. So holy crap, he does know you know his his overgeneralizations are in error. Or does he? He makes an example of the class of business owners not all agreeing on tariffs. I'm glad to see Bernays now recognizes classes are not homogenous groups. But I'm suspicious about this apparent change in tack. Bernays has an unnecessarily retarded way of seeing things. When discussing the, mo- the non-homogeneity of the class of, of workers, he writes, "Workers do not consist of a homogeneous group with complete identity of interests." <laughs> okay, with complete identity of interests. What a retarded way of saying with all the same interests. So do not let your guard down just because Bernays finally recognized the heterogeneity of the public. He also writes, The public consists of all sorts of conditions of men, the particular kind or condition depending upon the point of view of the individual who is making the observation. no. The public does not change depending on the point of view of the observer. The public remains unchanged. The only thing changing from the perspective of a third party is the observer of the public, their interpretation. So is Bernays targeting observers of the public or the public? Is it the observers or the public? Or is it uh, people's observations of other people? So he's definitely slept back into his uh, rut of stereotype. This could just be him telling the target audience of so-called elites that they are incapable of determining the particular kind of men that make up the public. And therefore, they need the professionals in PR who have the magic crystal ball which tells them what the Oracle of Delphi, you know, says. (laughs) Bernays makes shotgun claims of groups of people existing, right? Of course there are groups, but they are arbitrarily categorized by geography, family, ancestry, occupation, education, etc. Each class in no way implies homogeneity beyond the definition of that class. Anything assumed beyond the limits of that definition are obviously stereotype. That's not to say, you know, we can't use inductive logic of statistics if we have a large enough data set to extrapolate things. Like, say, dentists have the highest rate of suicide of any profession. I don't know if that claim is true or not, or just an urban legend, if it's based on sound research research, or just BS assertions. But if it's from a valid study, you know, we could cite that study and the date and then speculate from there. There might be other things. It might not be that they're dentists. There might be something specific to dentists. Maybe it's a, a drug they use or something, you know, or, or who knows, there might be other reasons. It may not be because they're dentists. But again, the, the quote isn't really specifically saying because they're dentists, they have the highest rate of suicide. They just say that they have this, you know, the highest number of suicides in the profession in, in, uh, is, is dentists. So they're not saying why. So it feels like I'm continuously fighting Bernays stereotypes, but he's using them so frequently I have no choice. I can obviously interpret a plausibly valid point that the target of specific groups by class, you know, profession, education, religion, may be more effective than a single untargeted campaign. In targeting specific groups, Bernays writes, the strongest appeal which the members of the group would respond are social aspiration, ambitions for leadership, competitive desires, and philanthropic tendencies. So we can go after the people with money who have philanthropic tendencies, right? So appeal to virtue signaling, you know, projection of status, proud member of an ideology, you know, humanitarianism. You know, you're a good person, aren't you? Right? So appeal to hierarchy, ego, 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 intelligence, snobbery, uh, insiderism, uh, discriminatory elitism, quality people buy X, low-class people do not use our product, <laughs> right? Our colleagues believe X, members of our secret society believe X. Brene sees the the light once again, a moment of clarity in the fog, when he writes, society is made up of an almost infinite number of groups, Whose various interests and desires overlap and interweave inextricably. In essence, Bernays claims the manipulator should create campaigns or attacks that appeal to the loves of the target music, art, money, power, sex, sports, expensive things, you know, based on likely presumptions. What is inexpensive that One could charge a lot for it because they're trying to portray elitism, and yet the general public schmucks could still afford it. Think coffee? Starbucks? They wouldn't do that, would they? Bernays makes a claim of the reach of the PR industry that I have a hard time believing, but he's referencing it as a regular course of business. In a campaign to intensify the interest in silk by a silk farm. Not a lobby, a farm, just a single business. Silk was projected as the embodiment of fashion to women's clubs. At museums, silk was displayed as art. To the schools in the same town, perhaps, silk became a lesson in the natural history of the silkworm. To art clubs, silk became color and design. To newspapers, the The events that transpired in the silk uh, news became news matters of importance right to the modern ear we can smell bullshit when we read this out loud perhaps he says suddenly it became hypothetical <laughs> to the schools in the same town perhaps perhaps so was it was it an actual anecdote or is this just a hypothetical right bernay started with this happened and then drops perhaps it could be right If any of that crap did happen, I would like to know the methods used to get women's clubs, museums, schools, art clubs, and newspapers all to conspire and agree to do what public relations wants at the behest of their client, the silk firm, right? Remember, this was specifically a story about a silk firm originally, right? Never mind the budget, perhaps, uh, you know, Bernays is just a grifter who was full of shit. He claims the women's group were appealed to on the basis of its greatest interest. The group, I guess the group would be an it, but I don't know. Seems very dehumanizing. School teachers appealed to as educators. Written 100 years ago, and PR still appeals to uh, teachers as educators, right? So what about the museums, the art clubs, and the newspapers? Bernays claims the interesting outcome of this situation, if it even happened, is that progress, however Bernays defines that, seldom occurs through the abrupt expulsion by a group of its old ideas in favor of new ideas, but rather the rearrangement of the thought of individuals in these groups with respect to each other and with respect to the entire membership of society. So, so notice yet again, Bernays starts speaking of it as uh, as definite, specific situation that actually happened. The outcome of this situation then morphs into a generalization. A generalization based on his claims about what seldom occurs and what actually is going on based on his assumption, which is based on a case study of one, an anecdote That is stereotype in the extreme. I see one black man who supports uh, BLM plough through a Christmas parade of mostly white folks, killing and injuring dancing grannies. Does this mean all black people are mass murderers who hate white people, or Christmas, or parades, or dancing grannies? Of course not, right? Bernays might think so, as well as others who use his logic. But all we can determine is that Dale E. Brooks Jr. uh, is a mass murderer who supported Black Lives Matter. So what is most plausible is that he was an exploited target of public relations via mass media who was naive enough to be played. The news cycles pitting people against each other is going to have effects. I guess that's the point of doing it. So in this case... With the Black Lives Matter garbage, is that simply to divide the people, to weaken us, so that we can be easier targets? I'm curious as to how Bernays' most likely fictional deployment of silk art in museums and classroom curriculum change, as well as art club and newsroom manipulation, rearranged the thought of individuals. If this campaign even happened, I would think it's more of a project the narrative as prestigious... Project Silk as prestigious, you know, make it an ad campaign and utilize as many avenues as possible. Though I'm very reluctant to believe a single Silk company can change a school's curriculum just for a campaign. Those who may attack people like me for claiming PR can be unethical and may have, you know, too much reach should start with their uh, grandfather Godfather Edward Bernays as his claims are much grander than mine. But the catch twenty-two for them is if they do so in an obvious manner, they are shooting themselves in their feet because PR want potential clients or bosses to think they have more effect than they do. And if they do it in a subtle manner, people may not notice. Perhaps things were different back in the day. I don't know. Did he send teachers, you know, uh course material and expect them to work for free? And they did? You never see that today with the unions and the teachers, right? And their uh, frequent strikes for more money for less work is evident that teachers want to do the least amount of work possible for the most amount of money they can get. I know there are some teachers who actually give a shit about teaching and not money, but apparently they are not the majority or they are being pushed around by the unions, which is, I don't know, maybe the unions collect more dues when the teacher's are making more money. I don't know. Bernays writes, it's precisely this interlapping of groups, the variety, the inconsistency of the average man's mental, social, and psychological commitments, which makes possible the gradual change from one state of affairs or from one state of mind to another. Few people are uh, life members of one group and only one group only. Few people are life members of one group and of one group only. So he's saying PR target the uh, the variability of people's opinions. Their open-mindedness is a vector of attack. In the context of interlapping groups implies PR target open-minded people with fallacious appeals to the crowd. He's also conflating the individual's opinions on multiple matters with inconsistency of all those opinions and all those of others who are somehow grouped with the target. Of course, individuals have different opinions, and some of those individuals are closed-minded, some are open-minded, some use valid reasoning, others fall for fallacious appeals. Bernays' reasoning is nonsensical and self-admittedly based on stereotype. We've already established that he is an idiot. We are just seeking what methods he preaches and which of those have effect, and why and what defenses we can put up against them. You really get the impression Bernays is mapping others as a simplistic, uh, simplistic paper cutouts, and not as the complex creatures that we are, that are you know capable of deep critical thought, meta-analysis of thought. He's using heuristics to dumb down the world to actionable targets using stereotypes and rough guesses, the type of rough and ready thinking that uh, Gustave Le Bon attributed to the idiot crowd. 35 years previous to uh, Bernays writing this book. So Bernays creepily effuses over his claim that belonging to interlapping groups makes for receptivity and (laughs) open-mindedness. So uh, he claims everyone are in interlapping groups and being in interlapping groups makes one open-minded. That would mean that everyone is open-minded, which is clearly a false statement. If everyone is in an interlapping group, which we are, that does not make us open minded because not everybody is open minded. So his implication that uh, receptivity and open mindedness implies naivete, which it does not. An open-minded, exploitable person can be easier to manipulate, whereas an open-minded critical person should have enough experience in schemata to protect themselves, at least from the more obvious attacks from the likes of Bernays, whereas the closed-minded person is unreasonable by definition and would have no experience in in determining the veracity of new information and would quickly drown in a sea of ever-evolving knowledge. <laughs> Put them in a circumstance where they have to make a decision on some new information and their inexperience would lead to their most likely making the choice the manipulator wants them to. We need to develop the muscle memory of being critical and reasonable and detecting logical fallacies, and we don't get that without experience, so we need to explore new information and and analyze it critically as often as we can, preferably with the feedback of objective reality so we can tell when we strayed off course. Others telling us what to think will not suffice. If anyone does not think that Bernays was aware of being a uh, sneaky shyster, listen to this quote. These changes which come about so stealthily that they can remain unobserved in society until long after they have taken place can be made to yield results in chosen directions. <laughs> Obviously, the changes do not just come about, they are the effects of intentional manipulation by people like Bernays. They are so stealthily implying that targets should not be made aware, or else they would not go along with it and remain unobserved until long after they have taken place. Nothing you can do about it now, schmuck losers. <laughs> so what type of person would be proud to be in public relations and claim Edward Bernays as the father of their industry? You know, this is from the horse's mouth. Bernays is a failed human a (laughs) subhuman he's not talking about psyops directed towards an enemy of the people he's talking about campaigns directed against his fellow countrymen his fellow human beings his neighbors his family his friends i consider myself at times to be a bit of a cynic but Bernays is a sociopath worse he is a dark-hearted necromancer. He apparently gets his jollies from manipulating innocent people and getting away with it without their noticing, especially until long after, right? I could see even uh, ideological battles, you know, but this shitbox apparently does not care about ideologies. Is he a genetically failed human or did his parents really just mess him up? Right? Bernays claims uh changed external conditions is external being conflated for what he claimed earlier as physical conditions. Whichever he claims his changing conditions modify the interests and opinions of his targets. The PR Council too can modify the results of the changed external condition by calling attention to it or interpreting it in terms of the interest of those affected. Attention is, of course, a staple to manipulation, but uh, so is uh, what's its converse, right? The hiding or censoring of information or data. This is also critical. Attention and the hiding of information. Bernays claims drawing attention or interpreting. He clearly means and, not or, as there's no point in interpreting for the purpose of manipulation if no one sees it. <laughs> attention is implied We get a bit of a clarification of what Bernays means by changed external condition and a reaffirmation of his creepiness when he refers to the recent advent of radio. If his clients are the large manufacturers of radio supplies and demand acceleration of his changed external condition, in order to increase their business, he may enlarge the radio's field activity and effectiveness or he may stress to the public the importance of his this new instrument and strengthen its prestige so that it may better fulfill its mission as a modifier of conditions by changed external condition from this example bernays means the implementation of a new medium of mass communication a new technology which can be capitalized on by the manipulator by enlarge the radios field, I think he means broadcast range, but he may mean the entire tech of radio, transmitters, receivers, repeaters, etc. Um, or or he might actually mean the, you know, the, the effect of it on people. It's also not clear what he means by activity and effectiveness. Is he referring to the content or conducivity of the devices, if it's uh, if conducivity is even a word, you know, in terms of conducive. This was decades before the solid-state transistor, so it was all hot tubes. He frames radio's mission as a modifier of conditions. A modifier of conditions. That's the purpose, the mission of radio from the perspective of public relations. So, one, changed external conditions is new tech. The modifier of conditions is radio's mission. So conditions appear to mean the perception of the public. So he's using this as a euphemism. So conditions may mean the condition of the target's opinion. And he also means conditions as in the environmental factors, which can modify the target's thinking. Radio's mission as a modifier of conditions. Perhaps he means radio as a vector of changing opinions, which, you know, can change other conditions. Like panic sell-off of stocks, or fear to justify mass injection of untested new drugs, or propaganda to gain support for a new war, conditions could then include stock trends, uh, public hysteria, or a public manipulated to die in war. Of course, the hoi polloi, only not the whole hoi oligoi. <laughs> Condition, circumstance in which people live or work or the state of something, usually in regards to appearance, quality, or working order. That is the definition of condition. Conditioned to bring to a desired state for use. So the conditions were suitable as the condition of their minds were ripe for conditioning. (laughs) I don't know why I was hung up on this, using conditions in different ways. Probably because I'm triggered by the ambiguity. Is that even a word? Neologism's. Ambiguosity, the ambiguity, as it's an indicator of uh, manipulation. Bernays writes that uh, changed conditions such as highest interest rates or high interest rates make it possible to change the opinion of the public by a bank to want more money in banks or to not pull it out. I could see that. Another example of change in public opinion due to a changed condition. So as Bernays talking about using interest rates as a form of PR to manipulate the public. Interest rates are bank-controlled things meant to explicitly manipulate the actions of the public on a macro scale. Or is Bernie simply meaning that manipulation can capitalize on changed conditions to manipulate their targets? Novel circumstances where the targets have to make a choice. That's a bad place for the closed-minded and naive open-minded alike. A catalyst to facilitate manipulation and to be promoted to tell the targets what they are supposed to do. Raise the interest rates and tell them to put more money in the bank. Promote a virus to spread uh, during a pandemic and tell them they are going to die. (laughs) And kill everyone they love if they do not inject a novel compound into their body. The conditions or environment is not solely responsible. It's just the setting which allows or facilitates the manipulation by those who perpetrate the craft. Bernays claims the elements of human nature are fixed in terms of desires, instincts, and innate tendencies. The directions in which these basic elements may be turned by skillful handling are infinite. Creepy ass mother effer. Right? Right? These examples he gives are uh, instincts of self-preservation manifesting as a desire for shelter, lust, and hunger. He claims these fundamentals exert a coercive force. Interesting to say that, you know, people say sex sells, right? But it's really lust that sells. Ads don't use intercourse to sell, right? But the desire for a high-quality mate, right? The, the, The lusting, it's the... It's not the, the actual act, obviously, of sex. and That's you know the natural interpretation versus the literal interpretation. Obviously, the, the, they're interpreting it to mean the lust, right? Well, why not just say lust then? Maybe sex sounds better. But uh, gustatory. What is gustatory? Gustatory is concerned with our sense of taste. Gustatory. So he refers to an ad which he claims appeals to our survival instinct. It's an ad for raisins. That reads, Have you had your iron today? It's not just an implicit appeal to survival, but more an assertion that iron is A, good for you, and B, you need it every day without citing any evidence. Same, <laughs> right? So, have you had your iron today? Well, do I, one, need iron every day, and two, is iron every day healthy? So the science of implied assertions by public relations. While some people are, in fact, iron deficient today, we know iron every day is not a safe recommendation for everyone, as some people have a surplus of iron and need to avoid it in their diet. My advice is uh, advice. My advice is to not take medical advice from advertisers, PR scum, news media, or politicians. They are professional liars. <laughs> so They are the last people you want to be taking medical advice from. So Bernays claims the instinct of preservation can be used to make a worker give up necessary food. Necessary food. So that he can have a little money to donate to a fund if he can be shown it's a safety measure. Self-fear and safety to cause literally poor schmucks to give up necessities like food. They're not saying surplus food, they're saying necessary food. Necessary means they need it for survival. Right? I, don't, uh, I don't need to define necessary, do I? Right. <laughs> so can you imagine a PR campaign that pushes people to think the safety of their loved ones depends not on asking questions or for proof or for thinking critically? Can you imagine something like that, right? Brené spells it out. PR counsel extract from his client's causes ideas which will capitalize certain fundamental instincts in the targets he's trying to reach and then sets about to project these ideas and fears into the mind regardless of what damage is done to the public, the sole concern being what the client wants As they are paying it's their dime. Are there limits to what PR PR firms might do? A British PR firm called Bell Pottinger went belly up after exploiting racial divisions in South Africa. Simply to deflect attention from the corruption of these guys called the Gupta brothers. And the president Jacob Zuma. And I'm pretty sure his son. I'm not sure but I think... uh, Yeah, his his son, I think, was involved. Sort of a Hunter Biden, Joe Biden deal, right? We all knew about it before the election. Despite the uh, collusion between big tech and news media and uh, the Democrats and who knows who else to have the story buried, Uh, the FBI, right? It's it's disgusting, the level of, of collusion and corruption at the highest levels. Anyways, Bell Pottinger, So if Bell Pottinger did that, what currently is happening in the PR world? If a British PR firm stoked up racial division in South Africa just to distract the corruption of the Gupta brothers and the president, possibly his kid, or maybe his kid, I'm not sure exactly, but to hide corruption, a public relations firm Stirred up racial tensions between blacks and whites in South Africa, knowingly, intentionally, just to distract, so the corrupt Gupta brothers could get away with their corruption. Public relations firm, right? They did that. They were caught. What are PR firms doing today that aren't haven't been caught? So, Bernays cites some uh, psychologist, Bill McDougall, who classified seven primary instincts and their attendant emotions. So we have instinct, emotion. They are flight, fear, repulsion, disgust, curiosity, wonder, pugnacity, anger, self-display, elation, self-abasement, subjugation, subjection, uh, parental love, tenderness, L, and claims they are all used in public relations in developing ideas and emotions for their attacks on the public's opinions and actions. <laughs> so I don't equate pugnacity with anger. I think just because people like to argue doesn't mean that's angry, right? That You could be having debates. But then again, I might be de- uh, defining pugnacity slightly differently, I'm not sure. And uh, fight or flight. So he says flight and fear... Well, there's also we know fight and flight. Now I don't know if that's even a thing, right? Soft sciences—you can never tell <laughs> what's bullshit or not. But uh, anyway, so these things are just assertions by this guy, Bill McDougal. McDougal—he just asserts these two things together: F- flight, fear, repulsion, disgust, curiosity, wonder, pugnacity, anger. Now you could you can connect them to make sense, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other ways that these. Uh, you know, instincts can make sense with other emotions. He's tying these specific emotions only to those uh, instincts. And their public relations are taking this and running with it as if it is 100% true. And they're basing their, pro, their, uh, their campaigns on this, according to Bernays. So he writes, public health officials stressing the possibility of a plague or epidemic is effective because it appeals to the emotion of fear. Bernays writes, public health officials, 100 years ago he wrote this, public health officials stressing the possibility of plague or epidemic or pandemic maybe is effective because it appeals to the emotion of fear. Curiosity, wonder, you know, are all called upon by PR for clickbait. Hangers to uh, questions are dropped to bait the target's attention. Bernays cites his uh, famous ads, what's wrong with this picture, which nobody's going to remember because it was like 100 years ago. So he claims pugnacity or the, the quality of wanting to argue or fight. And according to uh, old Bill McDougall, it's attendant emotion uh, as anger and it's used continually in PR. So PR uses it to create issues to stage battles against evils in which the antagonist is personified for the public. So you get that? Listen, I'll say that again. (laughs) PR uses it to create issues, to stage battles against evils in which the antagonist is personified for the public. So use words, he says, like warfare, kill germs, war on drugs, right? I wonder if the uh, etymology of German, I assume is from germinate, uh, being used for pathogens was due uh, to uh, animosity towards the Germans in the late 1800s. <laughs> Just a speculation. right? My uh, my father, who uh, who used colorful millisms and had a complicated history with World War II, used to call the Germans, uh, or call germs, Germans wash your hands, you know, get rid of the Germans, (laughs) wash the Germans off your hands, right? just a seed for thought. Anyways, germs are, in fact, you know, microorganisms which may cause disease as they germinate from a very small seed, but they may also be beneficial in our guts. So cognitive germs are likewise evil uh, little inceptions which capitalize on the compromised cognitive immunity of uncritical thought. This podcast is a vaccine or catalyst for cognitive well-being, for cognitive fitness. (laughs) So Bernays writes, under pugnacity would come that technique of PR, which is continuously devising tests and contests. So, PR has been continuously probing the human mind via tests and contests for at least a century. Bernays cites uh, a Mr. Martin who wrote, it's easier to bring a group of people together via an issue of some kind. As opposed to what? A party? (laughs) Right. And who says they don't already agree on objective truth or, uh, you know, things rational? Martin clarifies his point. He claims it doesn't matter how important or how well advertised a meeting is; it needs controversy to draw attention and attendance. We see this a lot in podcasts and uh, people on social media. They're they're always trying to create controversy, like Madonna. You know, the the skank uh, wearing baby parts on her dress. You know, trying to create controversy or fan the flames just to draw attention. And it's working because here I am talking about the old hag, right, Madge. So there is effect to the the creation and drawing attention to controversy. But uh, M- Martin continues here. If the matter to be considered is one about which there is keen partisan feeling and popular resentment... If it lends itself to the spectacular achievement of one whose name is known, especially in the phase of opposition of difficulties, if the occasion permits of resolutions of protest, of the airing of wrongs, of denouncing a a business of some kind, or of casting statements of external principles in the teeth of enemies of humanity, then however trivial the occasion, the meeting will be well attended." Partisan, spectacular achievement of celebrity, especially in the face of great difficulties, uh, resolutions of protest, airing of grievances, attacking enemies of humanity. Okay, got it. (laughs) We are all fighting a war in which we may be becoming uh, victorious over the great adversaries of the well funded perception management complex who are spreading germs of cognitive illness and are therefore enemies of humanity. In this fight for cognitive wellness, we are developing our cognitive fitness to further protect us from such scum and villainy. <laughs> Deception and manipulation should only ever be performed on a well-informed and uh, and uh, willing participant, though I imagine there are exceptions. This archaic infestation of cognitive germs on the unsuspecting public by malevolent forces has passed its time, its EOL, its end of life. Humanity is ready to acknowledge and bar its use. Or are we? Or has it? (laughs) The cognitive germ spreaders need to be called out at every instance in their perverted attacks. I can't think of a group less moral, More perverted and pathologically sociopathic than that lot. Without proof of existing or even a a constant specific definition of a crowd, Bernays breaks down the psychology of this theoretical construct. (laughs) If you've been following along, you will be aware that a crowd, as we define it today, as any assemblage of people that are. You know, that is absolutely not what Bernays and Le or Martin or Tittman are referring to. Bernays throws an unfounded assertion that sounds plausible, as many stereotypes do. Hence their prevalence. His claim is that a debate will draw a larger crowd than a lecture. It's believable, but it's not a valid generalization. Only the uncritical mind of a Marxist follower would believe and defend such a claim without hesitation or critical analysis. Anecdotally, I've been to paid lectures with an audience of a few hundred, and I've been to free debates where there was only a handful of people that showed up. One counterexample is sufficient to destroy an overreaching general claim. Can debates draw large crowds? For sure. Do they draw crowds because they are debates? Clearly not, because some debates do not. So therefore, they do not draw crowds simply because they are debates. Especially today with the public who have become exposed to the non-answers, pivots, and deflections rhetoric of scumbag politicians. By public, I'm referring to the collection of individuals who each independently recognize the BS rhetoric, not some fantastical collective hive mind. And that class of people are defined by and only by the recognition of that BS. That's the only thing that puts them in that class, right? I'm not saying as individuals that is their only defining factor, which would be ludicrous. As humans, we are all unique and complex creatures. I'm only clarifying that their being members of that class is defined by their recognition and not by eye color, gender, or any other demographic pigeonholing. I can almost hear the bigoted professors pushing their fallacious logic of stereotype. What else can we infer by someone recognizing the BS rhetoric of Trudeau? Answer. They are conservatives. They're Nazis. They're misogynists. They're uneducated. They drive pickup trucks and live in trailer parks and have bad oral hygiene. They support Donald Trump and watch TV shows like Breaking Bad and Yellowstone. I've literally heard all of these before simply for uh pointing out the the bullshit of Justin Trudeau. Well, if you don't like Justin Trudeau then therefore you must, you know, be uneducated. If you don't like Justin Trudeau then therefore you must it's clearly it's not rational people arguing that this is public relations people throwing ad hominems and they're not really doing it for my benefit. They're doing it for the benefit of the third party who are listening, right? Cause they don't want to have the ad hominems thrown at them. They don't want to be called a Nazi. So therefore they don't want to, you know, call Trudeau what he actually is. So what makes those, those people are literally closer to the actual people who supported the actual Nazis. Cause that's what they did. They did not speak up. They let the, the evil rise, right? Like uh, Einstein said, um, uh, I can't remember the quote, something about, uh, evil rises when good people don't do nothing or something like that. You can Google it. <laughs> and the same goes with these stereotypes um, people might put on themselves, right? Just because you're antisocial and have read Karl Marx does not make you intelligent. <laughs> you poor souls. So there are two valid reasons to quote someone, to give credit for a funny or a good idea, or to demonstrate what an idiot that person was. Now there might be other reasons. So there, there are at least two valid reasons. So quoting someone as uh, a form of proof as, you know, is fallacious. What Karl Marx said, why? According to Hegel, uh, why therefore Z. No, that's complete dog shit, right? Bernays writes that the evangelists draw crowds because he is regularly expected to abuse someone. <laughs> I don't know. Evangelists back in the 100 years ago are different than the evangelists of today. I don't, I don't know. I've never really seen evangelists. I've seen them on TV, but maybe they do regularly abuse people. And that's what people are drawn to. I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm missing out. <laughs> is that why, uh, you know, people actually went to evangelists, you know, or, or is that why he goes? Maybe that's why Eddie goes. Uh, Bernays. I don't know. How does Bernays know this? I don't know. Did he ask the attendees, you know, of some evangelists? How did he ask? Did he use leading questions? You know, where's his data? crickets, right? Bernays claims crowds like contests because they pick a side to crow and crow over the losers. I've already talked about that crowing over earlier, so I'm not going to beat that again, but Bernays makes the odd claim that winning makes the winners feel important. Important. We've all played games, sports, competitions of many kinds. I cannot say winning ever made me feel more important. I felt happy. I felt relieved, perhaps sympathy for the losers, perhaps some schadenfreude for, you know, dominating them. Right. If they were dicks <laughs> yeah. or, uh, you know, perhaps makes me feel satisfied, perhaps superior, maybe lucky, you know, sometimes nothing, you know, I want, so what, you know, there wasn't any competition, perhaps that arrogance, uh, or confidence, you know, I don't know, but it really depends on if you define something as a challenge conflict. I remember, you know, walking after spending five weeks in traction in the hospital after a motorcycle accident. I felt like I was winning just by walking. It was a challenge, but I felt like I wane. And did it make me feel important? No, that was important was not a word or a concept that was in my mind, you know, relieved, excited, happy, right? I think Bernays dropped a uh, psychological expose on his effed up childhood and, and value set he obviously values importance and domination over others not to say that we shouldn't value feeling important that's not a bad thing or or even dominating other people at times right it's it's it's, it's a natural thing but there's levels there's reasonable right does yeah right um, and that doesn't mean it's always right it's like when you're when you're in a competition there's nothing wrong with that to uh, try to win. Right, but dominion, domination, these are, you know, sketchy concepts, right? So if one finds himself in a in a leadership role, they may have a feeling of importance in that situation, right? As, as their decisions now carry greater weight and impact, but also responsibility. Important is defined as something, you know, likely to impact one's survival and quality of life. So to conflate winning a game or competition with survival or quality of life is Primitive. It's a primitive mode of thought, right? You could sense how it's very caveman. So I'm not trying to take away or diminish the joy of winning or overcoming a great challenge. I'm pointing out the error in conflating winning with feeling important. Obviously, winning in the natural world can be of crucial or critical importance. But to have the uh, the mental simplicity of conflating the trivial pursuits of sports and games, with life and death situations indicates a very primitive mind, perhaps only capable of thinking in stereotype. I can hear Bernays, you know, supporters attacking me for being insensitive to Bernays obvious mental illness. (laughs) This is like our our bucket analogy earlier, a uh, simple bucket of color versus the more sophisticated buckets that frame the hues of the complexity of the visual spectrum. I don't want to make it sound like framing and naming is the most accurate arbitrary borders or divisions of a gradient is a clunky way to make sense of the world, especially if we ignore the holistic perspective. But there is no limit to that by definition. So we need some heuristic, we need some framing of understanding, right? Our buckets, our schemata are perhaps an oversimplified model for for how we think. You know, we are not defined packets of thought. You know, thought uh, though concepts can be, you know, neatly packaged a lot of the time. It feels more like a, a continuum of choice, right? Where we have access to our private libraries of schema or concepts. Like we're driving down a road and a road sign passes by, you know, of ideas or idea fragments. We can stop and think about it and look at the sign or we can just let it slip by and, and ignore it. So our judgment of of feeding the monster or choosing not to feed the monster letting our emotions take control or taking control of our emotions, seeing a connection and realizing that connection may be false. These are all meta-layer thinking, thinking about thinking. And it's critical to use it as often as we can, and especially at important moments. And when we're thinking uh, and when we're receiving new information, it's it's a moment we should definitely be using it. Right now you're listening to me, and you should be using it. You should be questioning me and thinking: Is this guy full of shit or not? Right? Is so what am I saying? Uh, does it make sense? Do I have an agenda? Am I appealing to your emotion and logical fallacies and so on? Right. So reading Mao, Zedong, uh, Gustav Le Bon, and uh, uh, Bernays, you see they have some comprehension of the concepts, but are not using them for some reason. Perhaps it's an intentional deception. Or something else. It's it's unknown. I could speculate, but I don't know. Perhaps even they uh, they recognized it, and to them it's unknown why they fail to use the concepts of valid reasoning. If if they recognize their cognitive weaknesses, wouldn't they try to correct them? That may be a tall order. And, you know, I I recognize I have, and everybody I know we have uh, cognitive weaknesses. And do we actually try to correct them? Some do, some don't. Even though we know there's flaws, some people don't bother. It's just like exercise. You know, we know it's good for us. Do we bother doing it? A lot of people do. So I'm aware of a lot of the uh, the concepts, and I, and I do drop the ball often. If I If I catch that I've dropped the ball. <laughs> I know I don't always, you know, use critical thought, though I would like to. And sometimes I recognize a fallacious, fallacious argument on my part, but it's it feels good sign sometimes to allow the odd transgression and talk shit in ad hominem, right? Why is that? The question, you know, why would that feel good to you know ad hominem instead of argue when you know you're right about a point, right? You, you still feels as good as to call people names, right? Why does it take more uh, mental energy to watch for fallacies and? change our jibe right the more we do it the easier it gets but why the the cognitive resistance just like exercise we know it's good for us but we sometimes have to exert mental energy past some barrier that doesn't want us to waste energy it makes sense that you know we evolved to use the least amount of energy possible to keep ourselves alive and relatively healthy because we did not have a surplus of food i'm sure back in the day maybe we did i don't know Perhaps we needed to uh, starve a bit to get ourselves motivated to release some, you know, transmitters or hormones or whatever it takes to get us up and moving. Resources are getting low, time to burn some energy and food. I'm not saying that's actually what happens. It's a hypothesis on my part. It makes sense to me. I'm not saying we're also just chemical reactions, you know, that, that are drive us, you know, but we're definitely affected by them. It makes sense that we evolved to conserve energy and that hunger can drive us to activity. So what about the hunger for truth? Can that drive us to act? If we can live well enough with the, the lies we believe, that's not a critical motivator to seek the truth. We only recognize our bodies are sedentary when we see how fat we are or when we buy clothes or step on a scale. How can we recognize our minds are being cognitively sedentary? Only when it's overwhelmingly obvious to us. We have the cognitive dissonance. If our bodies are strong enough to uh, sufficiently perform our daily activities, we mostly ignore exercise. If our thinking is sufficient to perform our daily tasks, how often do we think about our thinking? It's much easier to tune out and watch something on the screen. Bernays claims the instinct of pugnacity, the tendency to want to argue or fight, is a powerful weapon to get the public to an opinion the public relations, cl- or, uh, public relations counsel wants, the public relations client wants. <laughs> the indication is that public relations uses pugnacent, pugnacity pugnacity, to get the public to dislike an opinion or a person or you know concept, regardless of it being true or not. The implication is since PR is using pugnacity, therefore they are trying to get the public to fight against a certain opinion or position. Whether the opinion or position is true is irrelevant. And this is not mentioned by Bernays. So pugnacity is a powerful weapon for PR. Weapon is defined as a thing used for inflicting bodily harm or physical damage. Yes, a weapon can be defensive as well as offensive, just like most tools. And a person who is really good at something, you know, may be called a weapon. But in the context of a powerful weapon to get the public to hold a certain opinion, it's clearly being used offensively against the unsuspecting public. And for Bernays to choose the words power weapon in this context uh, indicates how how he truly feels about his targets in the public. He recognizes at least some level of PR is not benign and malevolent from the perspective of the public and a third party observing the shenanigans. Bernays writes, The dangers of the method of appealing to pugnacity must be borne in mind. He claims pugnacity can be enlisted on the side of decency and progress. It can be enlisted on the side of decency and progress. Wow, he needed to express that thought, right? He needed to, right? Get this, folks. We can also use it for decency and progress. doesn't mean we will, just saying it can be. So this implies his, uh, his go-to thought was not of using it for decency and progress, right? He writes it can be. Not that it is or even that it should be. It can be used for good. Bernays quotes Joel Pulitzer's idiot son, Ralph. Ralph Pulitzer, it seems neither extraordinary nor culpable that people and press should be more interested in attacks than moral content. I keep hitting a bump and getting twisted out of shape when reading old books, you know, when they conflate the people in the press. But uh, today we think of the press as a distinct class of professional liars. But the original meaning of the press was simply a mechanism that people use to communicate important messages and stories to each other. The press, the physical, right? The press, we all use it. So no one can be uh, recognized press. If you're a citizen, you are the press, right? Theoretically, though, in reality, practice does not match theory. In this case, we have to recognize that while people are paid to write in the press, while of the people, they are not the people. And in reality, the press are a class of professional liar. If one is speaking theoretically, I might give them a pass to conflate the people with the press, but if they are speaking practically, no quarter is given. And Ralph Pulitzer appears to be a douchebag. The public are not responsible for what the press write. If a journalist uses the tools of manipulation to deceive the public, the public is the target. The, the, the public-press um, relationship is not a neutral or benign feedback system. It is intentional deception on an unwitting public, ultimately by a client a puppet master who knows full well what they are doing. Bernays writes, on the other hand, the instinct of pugnacity can be utilized to suppress and oppress. So now we're talking about suppression and oppression. Those for the kids in the back are bad things. From the perspective of PR, I'm going to continue reading, he wrote this. So, on the other hand, the instinct of pugnacity can be utilized to suppress and oppress from the perspective of PR who was interested in accomplishing def- definite results on specific issues. The dangers of the method are only the ordinary dangers of every weapon, physical or psychological. I think that needs to be read again slower. This is Bernays. This is his words. On the other hand, the instinct of pugnacity can be utilized to suppress and oppress. From the perspective of PR, who is interested in accomplishing definite results on specific issues, the dangers of the method are only the ordinary dangers of every weapon, physical or psychological. Edward Bernays, the father of PR, just called public relations a dangerous psychological weapon. A weapon used on behalf of a client on an unsuspecting public. public. Pugnacity can be used for good. On the other hand, it can be used to suppress and oppress. So suppression means to hold down by force you know, or to stop something. So oppression is prolonged cruel or unjust treatment or unjust control over others, unjust treatment, unjust control over others. Oppression is never a good Thing. Suppression to hold down by force. Does Bernays explicitly say use deceptive appeals to pugnacity to hold down opinions by force and have prolonged cruel and unjust treatment of the public? No. He just claims PR is a powerful tool to do that. <laughs> In a book called Crystallizing Public Opinion. <laughs> prolonged might imply prolonged funding right who's who's in the in their budget right to control the public's opinion does does bernays refer to it as a weapon to urge caution <laughs> no careful you might wield great power over the public's opinions right it's almost written in such a way that a moral person could if they were careful naively interpret pr as a power for good that would never be misused by sociopaths in boardrooms, political offices, and other forces of malignant control. Are we still that naive today? Some probably are. Hopefully the, the force of zeitgeist that destroyed Gilligan's Island will also destroy the veil of manipulation and deceit by malignant forces today though the apparent percentage of fools who still believe news media unquestioningly, when a great percentage of the public was apparently more critical a hundred years ago, is a trend in the wrong direction. Now, I don't know if they actually were or what percentages were. It just appears to be from reading these books on manipulation, the crowd. We refer to how intelligent the people were. What I observe today is not that. (laughs) I can only speculate But the blade of the PR class may have grown sharp with use over the past 100 years. It would not be a stretch to think their powers have grown and that we may be conditioned to be cognitively softer targets. Bernays notes in his, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to him, that newspapers use the same methods to promote interest in itself as do others. And his example was the New York Times creating contests and challenges for airplanes on altitude records, continuous stays in the air, distance, etc. I'm not sure about Bernays' claims, but about the cause of aviators trying to beat those records simply because a newspaper contest. The world of engineering has always been one of pushing the envelope. Engineers don't do it because of external pressures. They do it because they are engineers. Always pushing the envelope. Longer, lighter bridges. Faster, smaller electronics. More efficient generators. Power out over power in. These limits generally bring in more money due to the competitive advantage. Not for bragging rights in a newspaper. Bernays is apparently suffering from a distorted perspective of his profession. Like a guitar manufacturer taking credit for a great musician or a typewriter company taking credit for a great author or a newspaper taking credit for advances in aviation. If that's the case, then Bernays, you know, most aligns himself with newspapers. Interesting that a PR man would mostly relate to a a newspaper. It's not too much of a stretch, but we are living in a, in a complex system. So I'm not saying papers had zero effect or an instrument you know, has no effect, or a typewriter has no effect. I'm just saying they are not the significant factors. Although it might be hard to write a, a really cool song with a really crappy guitar, you know, you can't get the thing in tune. You know, you know, there's a lot of factors, right? Complex, but generally it's the artist, right? So if it was the instrument, then the instrument, anybody who buys that instrument, and that's the illusion, they want you to think that anybody who buys that instrument will be able to play like Jeff Beck or whoever, right? So Lippmann writes, when pugnacity is not enlisted, those of use who are not directly involved find it hard to keep interest. Does he mean those directly involved as in those who are being reported on? No. What does he say it takes to be involved in an issue from the public's perspective? Interest? So all Lippman is claiming that those who are not interested find it harder to keep their interest in things that they are not interested in. No shit, Holmes. <laughs> so he continues, for those involved, the absorption may be real enough to hold them when no issue is involved, which Lippmann theorizes their uh, their interest may be due to sheer joy in activity or by the subtle rivalry or invention. Subtle rivalry or invention, so it may be due to conflict or perhaps subtle conflict, right? These shysters have a one-track mind. At least Lippmann also mentions invention, which I will interpret to mean novelty and innovation, A new innovative innovative way of doing something can catch a lot of people's attention, but as any father who points out some novel, interesting innovation at a show of some kind, you know, craft show, trade show, whatever, he knows what he finds interesting may not be shared by his spouse or his spawn. (laughs) And there's a term for this, menschkeit or man talk, what real men talk about to each other. The anti-man misandrists, Or man haters also have a word for it. They call it mansplaining due to the toxic masculinity of the patriarchy. Woke bigots can be funny at times. So, Martians and Venetians, you know, should not be attacked for who or what they are. Anyways, Littman's point is that if someone is not interested in something for whatever reason, a tool. Uh, a manipulator may bring to bear on the target is to force them to be interested in something they are not naturally uh, interested in, is to allow them to to exercise the love of struggle, suspense, and victory. So notice he's talking about appeals to emotion, the love of struggle. Who the fuck loves struggling or watching another one, another person struggle, right? I suppose a parent might exci- get excited by their, their spawn struggling to stand for their first time or, or grasp calculus, though his choice of words is dark. A challenge is one thing, but struggle evolves uh, evokes um, imagery of, of violent efforts to get free of restraint. Pugnacity is the willingness to fight. If, if one is struggling in a fight, they're usually in over their head and probably don't want to be there. So they are, not, they are not wanting to. They're not willing to be there. Also, his thinking of struggle, suspense, and, and victory is very psycho. Normal people think in terms of challenge, conflict, and resolution. Win, lose, or draw. I could be reading a little too much into this, but struggle Suspense and victory is pretty creepy. Psychoanalyzing some dude who's been dead for 50 years may seem like uh, futile if it were not for the meme of his mind cancer living on and apparently metastasizing, rapidly spreading, you know, beyond just public relations. Metastasis, metastasis, stasis means stable, equilibrium. Meta means. Uh, comprehensive or transcending, like data about data or thinking about thinking. Metastasis should mean transcending equilibrium or variations of that theme. Why don't we just use the word spreading? (laughs) I suppose spread, you know, and going beyond stability are different concepts. But metastasis metastasis does not mean uh, going beyond stable. That would just be unstable. transcending or going beyond are also slightly different concepts. A system can be unstable and decay, or it can be unstable and grow, or it can be quasi-stable if it oscillates regularly like a sine wave. Transcend can mean to uh, pass beyond the limits of a concept or something. So it transcends the limits of, you know, what a human is, right? Uh, So that would make sense. If a cancer spreads beyond the limits of an organ or something, right? That would jibe with our, uh, our normal definition of metastasis, 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 how do you pronounce that? Metastasizing, right? Metastasis. Spreading beyond the limits. But I think the etymology of stasis is stay, as in where one stands. So that's why all those countries end in stan, which, uh, the, uh, you know, it means where they stand like Afghanis they stand in afghanistan pakistan Pakistan in Pakistan Uzbekistanis stand in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstanis stand in Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistani stand in Turkmenistan and Tajikistanis stand in Tajikistan anyway the uh, the malignant mind cancerous framework is still there, and the techniques including appealing to pugnacity. The want to argue or fight. I'm not sure if pugnacity includes those who enjoy a good debate or logical argument. Like that's how I define it, but it might just mean screaming, punching, you know, form of argument, fight, you know. But I sometimes enjoy a good debate, a good logical argument. Though many people get upset when you question their opinions. I might. I don't know. It's it's important to know that this is a healthy attitude. It's a vector of attack. Uh, by the mind cancer meme of manipulation, right? Again, trying to use our strengths as weaknesses. But Walter Lippmann isn't really claiming manipulators should appeal to the target's pugnacity. He's claiming they should appeal to the target's voyeuristic desires to watch a fight. Not the fight itself, not not participating, just the watch... Which makes sense, as it would be difficult for a manipulator to get a target into an argumentative frame of mind without drawing them into using their reasoning skills. So the solution is to get them passively uh, to partake in, uh, you know, vicariously living uh, through one of the the puppet combatants. Then both sides of the argument are under the manipulator's control, which is genius. Right, have X and argue about which concept is better without having the target thinking both concepts are garbage. Right? Use the either-or fallacy. It's a meta version of the either-or fallacy. The targets can be distracted and kept from thinking outside the parameters with appeals to emotion and getting them to focusing on what counters the combatants will come up with or should come up with. It's meta Either or, because there isn't even thinking about which option to choose. They are watching a fiction of actors thinking for them. Whether they choose a side or not, they are otherwise mentally occupied. They are thought stopped. And that is a very powerful tool to, to stop people from reasoning. To watch them participate, right? To, not participate, to watch them so they live voyeuristically. It's like sports, you know, uh, or pro sports. There's nothing at stake for the spectator, and it's infinitely more enjoyable to play than watch, unless of course we try to make it more interesting by betting. but that begs the question if it's so boring, why you know why do you need to bet to make it interesting? Why bother watching at it all? It's going to be more interesting things to do, so Littman is arguing the conflict is sufficient to draw and keep attention Which is easily refuted by all the conflict in politics and the general disinterest in politics by a lot of the the general public. I concede conflict if suspenseful can uh, can be interesting, but uh, it's the suspense that makes it interesting, not the mere fact of conflict. Now there is, that there is suspense implies there is interest, right? How can something be suspenseful and not be interesting? If we are not interested, won't we feel suspense? You know, we won't feel it. (laughs) So which dog crossed the line first? Who cares, right? If we're betting, then we now have interest in the same conflict that we didn't before. It's not the conflict. It's our personal gain or loss that makes it interesting. So like winning the lottery, someone wins it and we don't care. If we win it suddenly, it's interesting. (laughs) For those of us and the deadbeats we used to know that come out of the woodwork, thinking there might be some benefit for them if they try to rekindle contract despite being uh, contact, not it con- contract contact despite being uh, over over uh, overt douchebags. <laughs> so Lippman's uh, slipping the word suspense in there is either crafty or he's an idiot. Like in the movie jaws, when Quint first gets the shark to take the bait on his fishing line, he says, I don't know chief. He's either very smart or very dumb. So, <laughs> What made that line so great was that it revealed the experienced old sea dog was a critical thinker, which gave his cockiness more weight, and at the same time, his cockiness was shaken by this beast, indicating that this is something that even Quint had never come across. He was an uncharted waters, the unknown, though the audience knew what he was up against, the the unprecedented monster of Jaws, and we were brought right to the limits of our belief. But Spielberg did not cross the line. Spielberg is a master at getting his targets to be interested in something meaningless, so meaningless that is known by all to not be true.